You're listening to the GamesIndustry.biz podcast. I'm James Batchelor, and this week we have a special episode for you. Chris, Matt, and myself took part in a special panel session at EGX 2019 over the weekend, which is a games convention run in the UK by our parent company, Gamer Network. The session was called Should Nintendo Go Third Party and Other Questions? We figured it was an interesting discussion, interesting enough to include as a full episode of the podcast. So to explain a little bit more about the session, I'm just going to hand over to my previous self. I'm UK editor of GamesIndustry.biz. For those who don't know, GamesIndustry.biz is the sister site of Eurogamer. It's more industry focused, it's less where is uh, hiding and what has he got this week and more what on earth is going on Bungie now, they're not with Activision anymore. Um, for this session, should Nintendo go third party and other questions? Basically, we obviously ask a lot of business sized questions, uh, we speak to industry execs a lot. We don't necessarily address stuff that uh, consumers or gamers uh, understand or want to know. So we figured this would be a fun time to get questions from consumers, from gamers, from real people who play games and answer those from our kind of business perspective, give a bit more an insight as to how the industry works. Um, joining me up here is... Uh, Matthew Handrahan, I'm the Editor-in-Chief of the website. Uh, as James said, we focus on things that I think gamers actually probably do want to know, it's just they're often quite hard to access, they're trapped on investicles and things like this. We do that so you don't have to basically, so this is the purpose of our session. Um, I'm Chris String, I uh, am the publisher uh, of Games Into Biz. Um, I sort of run, sort of oversee the website from a sort of top level uh, position, but I also run a lot of the events that Games Into Biz does. In fact, they're doing an investment event upstairs right now where game developers are pitching games to people with money to try and get their games funded so they can be down here next year showing it off. Uh, we'll dive into our first question then. Uh, should Nintendo go third party? Should platform holders publish their games on each other's consoles? I'd like to see Gran Turismo on Xbox, says Jenny. Um, guys, I'm not going to answer first. Is your well, I think we've, we've actually already seen this start to happen. Uh, it's not really so much that should Nintendo go third party. Actually, the, the company that most seems like have most desire to make this happen at the moment is Microsoft, is Xbox, right? Uh, you've seen Cuphead, which was first party game on Xbox. That's now on Switch. You've got Xbox Live features on Switch. Microsoft has made a lot of noise around things like cross-platform play as well. Um, Microsoft is the company that seems to have the least issue with its games being playable by players on other platforms. Generally speaking, this would never happen in the past, right? No one would would expect uh, PlayStation to be happy with Xbox, with their games being on Xbox. That could be the one company I feel like that would never ever say yes to this stuff, right? PlayStation seems to be the one that has no interest whatsoever in sharing its its audience with anybody. But I wonder how much of that has come out of Xbox being quite undeniably last place this generation. Like, PlayStation has no interest in putting Gran Turismo on Xbox because Gran Turismo is a selling point. Maybe only to, like, the petrol heads, but it's, it's a selling point. Spider-Man is a selling point. Uh, God of War, Uncharted, The Last of Us, those are games that sell PlayStation 4s, and PlayStation 4 is by far and away the leading console. I wonder if Xbox had been in that position as it was previous generation, if they'd be as comfortable. Uh, I, I think it probably would. Whether or not it would happen this generation, I'm not quite sure. But like, people, so, PlayStation is like a huge, huge part of Sony. It's the thing that props up its entire, it's all of its financial results. It's the driving force behind the business. Xbox is actually a really small part of Microsoft. People forget that. For like quite a few years, 
you know, we on like the, the business side of journalism, we were really unsure about what the future of Xbox would even be, whether Microsoft would persist with it, whether it would get closed down. We're only talking a few years ago now, really. Um, that's not doesn't seem to be happening. There's been a real show of faith. But I think what's, what you've started to see happen, I think this is what you're seeing with Xbox now. It's not necessarily that we're last place, what do we do about it? It's more Microsoft saying, our, the way we see our whole business is all of our products and services. So we want everything we do available everywhere. So like you can you can access like Word on an iPad. That didn't happen up until relatively recently. This is a change in thinking at Microsoft that's now trickling down to Xbox. At least that's how I see it. They see Xbox not as a console in a walled garden, or it doesn't need to be. I think in the future, as time goes on, it's going to be open more and more open uh, as we go. Uh, I, I think we'll leave the Nintendo. Nintendo is almost a separate question at the moment. But the the Xbox, PlayStation, Microsoft is a services company. They have been their entire life. So they they make they make software. They make services. That's what they do. PlayStation make things. They make Walkmans. They make uh, TVs. They make consoles. Cameras. So for them, they're a hardware business, and they want to sell consoles, and games help them sell consoles. Microsoft want to sell services. They want you to be Xbox Live. They want you on Game Pass. That's their thing they're obsessed with right now. They all want you, they want you on Game Pass. We just had them talking upstairs. Game Pass, Game Pass, Game Pass, Game Pass. Um, game Pass doesn't have to be on Xbox One. It can be on PC, and it can be on. It could, in theory, be on Switch if Nintendo allowed it. It could be on PlayStation. And if PlayStation and Switch allowed that, I'm sure Xbox would be we like to put our games on these platforms. Um, and then xCloud and PlayStation Now as well, in a way, that confuses the conversation even more because then what is even a console in that space? And what is even exclusive? That does confuse the com conversation even more. <laughs> Absolutely. But I think with Nintendo going third party, which is the other question, it's, it's a little different. So what you're, you're not actually saying, should Nintendo put games on other consoles? Because they already do, they put it on mobile is uh, should Nintendo stop making consoles and only put their games on other things? Because there is this belief, and it's, I can understand where it comes from, that if Mario Kart was on PlayStation Xbox, they'd sell more copies of Mario Kart. And uh, yes, they probably would sell more copies of Mario Kart. Would they sell more copies of Zelda? I'm not so sure, because um, there's a fan base there. You lose a lot from that. But I think one of the, the big things with Nintendo, if I pick on, particularly pick on Nintendo for a moment, is that they... Um, is that platform holders have a different business model to publishers. Publishers need to make money from games. They have to make money from their, they release a game to make money. Whereas platform holders release a game, don't always release a game for that reason. So I'll give you um, my favorite example of this, and it's the best one, is Bayonetta. Now Bayonetta to Sega isn't a profitable franchise. It isn't worth them releasing Bayonetta. It doesn't make any money. It makes a little bit, but not enough to justify it. To Nintendo, it is a profitable franchise. And the reason why it is to Nintendo is that there's a group of Bayonetta fans who really love Bayonetta, and they buy a Switch to, or a Wii U to, buy, to play Bayonetta. And once they've bought a Switch and a Wii U, they might buy Zelda, they might buy Fire Emblem Warriors, they might buy whatever, an extra controller. And suddenly, that Bayonetta customer to Nintendo is worth more money than a Bayonetta customer is to Sega. And that's why Nintendo will do that. And if Nintendo went third party, they wouldn't do Bayonetta. Um, they might not even do Metroid. Metroid's not a very successful franchise. It's okay, it depends on the game. But the biggest selling Metroid game is one and a half million. And when you think that Mario games periodically, you know, Zelda's done almost 20 million. We look at that, 
You think, would they, would they do Metroid? Does it make sense to their shareholders for them to spend all that time and investment making a Metroid game if they were a third-party publisher? Possibly not, but as a console owner, people will buy Metroid, buy a console for Metroid, and buy the games around it. And that's why and it's a completely different business. And if you see what happened to Sega, they were a successful business now, but they had a hard time for a while. And you looked at Atari, which is the best example, of actually going third party doesn't, is not, is not, is no evidence that that works at all. That's a good point. I mean, when I started out in games journalism, uh, which is about 10, 12 years ago now, every publisher had a much bigger product slate than they do now. They made a lot more games. I think anyone that's doing third-party publishing now, it's like Chris says, it gets harder to justify a game that sells two million copies or one and a half million copies. You lot, I mean, the amount of games that used to come out every single month on, on kind of console boxed games was far higher than it is now. Those pub, all of those publishers, Activision, Square Enix, they kind of cut down their portfolios so much because the pressure on them in terms of budgets is just way higher than it's ever been. So if Nintendo did go down that path, you'd probably lose quite a lot of games that you'd otherwise really enjoy. We're in danger of taking up half an hour on that one question. So um, the whole point of this is it's, it's your questions answered. So does anyone have any questions? We have more here, but does anyone have any questions? We have loads, so it's perfectly fine if not. Nope, that's fine. Okay. okay. Uh, John asks, when is Half-Life 3 coming out? Never, right? <laughs> like... Well, maybe not never. Um... Uh, one of our one of our writers went out to see Valve earlier this year, and they dropped very very clear hints that not Half-Life 3, but Half-Life is being made for VR, a Half-Life game, a game set in the Half-Life universe. None of this is confirmed, of course, but and I don't think we can say that it's Half-Life 3, but they they dropped very clear hints that this is in production at the moment. Um, but I think this question, I mean, it's, it's like a perennial question, right? It's constantly being asked by everybody about Valve. But this one is it's a good one for us to, to discuss because this really gets to uh, what, we're, what we're effectively dealing with here is a, is a business question. Is why isn't Valve making Half-Life 3? Why isn't Valve making Left 4 Dead 3? Why isn't Valve making Team Fortress 3, right? Like, we all love Valve for those specific reasons. And I've long been a believer that Valve just, I mean, forget, you know, how much money we've made. Valve just owes it to its fans to make Half-Life 3. It has the staff, so just do it. Um, whether that's ever going to happen, I don't know, but I feel like Valve has just turned into a different kind of company now, right? Like, they don't... They're not, it's not really a game developer in the same way anymore. It, it makes... As much as anything, it makes platforms, I think. Yeah. Be that a VR software platform, now VR hardware platforms, or game platforms like Dota, you know, a game that kind of never dies. I think with Valve, though, Valve make the best games in the world, right? And if, and if Half-Life 3 isn't the best game in the world, they don't release it. I bet that game's been worked on tons of times. You know, I just, it's, it's always in development. I bet it's been in development since Half-Life 2. But, you know, I just, it's just one of those things. It's, and the, the company there's got a flat structure. They can make what they like. And you know what? Some people don't, may not want to make Half-Life 3. And that's a problem. If they don't want to make it, if none of the team want to make it, or nobody goes, I'm not making it, you can make it. Then after, it after, get... this long, after this long, I can't imagine anyone wants to make Half-Life 3. Yeah. You do not want that pressure. Duke Nukem forever, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, Half-Life 3 is the kind of game, going back to what we were talking about before, about the pressure on products to perform at market now because of how expensive they are. Half, like, you, you could make a version of Dota that worked well enough to put out into the world with far fewer people than you would need to make a Half-Life 3 beginning to end. Half-Life is like 
an uncharted God of War kind of game. For that kind of game, you need a team of 200 people. You need a budget of $150 million or something. And that's something that we get the impression, everything that comes out of Valve suggests that the structure it has, which is all about building consensus across a group of people that have no job titles, that's just an incredibly hard thing to get going at Valve now. Because what you need is effectively to make a game as of the kind of Half-Life 3, which is, and it should be said, the kind of game that Valve doesn't make anymore, and that's not a coincidence, I don't think. It's very hard to get that kind of game made because you need buy-in from pretty much every single person at Valve. And one of the notable things about Valve is we don't know quite how much money it turns over a year, but it's a lot. But they've only still only got about 300 employees. I mean, you, you, if you look at a company like King, which makes Candy Crush, they've probably got 300 people just working on customer support. Uh, Valve operates Dota, it runs Steam, and it does all of this with about the same number of people as, say, Ubisoft has working on art for a single Assassin's Creed game. Um, how you ever get that into a team that's making Half-Life 3 when you need everyone to agree with each other, so maybe it never ever comes out. Okay. okay, apparently we've got that one covered. Marvellous. Um, how do you feel about Nintendo's approach to new mobile gaming, asked Marty. Um, are they doing too much? What's working, what isn't? Uh, Mario Kart is crap. Super Mario Run, one-time payment to unlock. I, basically, I, th I think she's basically saying like the monetization models there have been inconsistent. Like, is Mario Kart crap? No, I've actually started to get into it. I've actually started to enjoy it. It's, for a mobile version of Mario Kart, it's surprisingly playable. It's not that bad. I hated it to begin with, I despised it, but I've grown to not despise it. I tried the tutorial race, I then sulked for a week, because Mario Kart is the one game I'm good at, and this had ruined that for me, and then I got back into it, it's like, oh, okay, no, I, I get this now. Nintendo is struggling with mobile, and I think it's partly because they, they, they loot, bo uh, loot boxes, microtransactions, it's not, and Nintendo don't like that. Uh, you can tell they don't like that. That's why they did with Super Mario Run this free game that you can pay a fight, which I thought was a great business model, but nobody downloaded it. So nobody paid it. And it was, um, I say nobody, but uh, it, was, it was significantly below their expectations. So they're sort of forcing into trying these microtransaction techniques. And it's not, Nintendo are all about family. They're all about the positive. They, they don't want to be caught up in um, uh, articles about my kids spent a million pounds on Mario Kart. They don't want that story. That's not Nintendo. They, that's why they're. That's why they're like their uh, friend code stuff so archaic. Right? They don't. They don't. They almost don't want their, the children gamers of their games playing with um, uh, angry people online. But so why? So why do they make mobile games at all then? I think because. Um, there, it's money, yeah, isn't it? It's, 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 also, it's also where the business is, and they also want to build a licensing business. They're doing this um, new um, uh, uh, theme park as well in Japan. Um, they already have a licensing business, so they want to make that even bigger. They want to make that more significant. So, and that mobile helps them do that. It's worth pointing out, Mario Run's been downloaded, what, 300 million times? So although it's not made a lot of money, it's done wonders for Mario. That's like the most successful Mario game ever. Um, and um, Mario Kart Tour, you know, Mario Kart, 8 Deluxe is always in the charts. It's a permanent success. Bringing it on mobile makes complete sense. It's going to be a huge success for them. But, um, and it, it will reach an audience. So even if Nintendo don't make money from these games, from, uh, and they do, from, they do from all of them, I think, but if they don't make what they necessarily want to, it's such a wonderful thing for their brand and for their characters to get out there in front of a, an audience that's mainstream. Nintendo created the Wii and the DS to unlock 
the next, you know, gamers who are young. They, they did it, they went, right, we want to, or, or people that don't play games, mums, dads, everyone who don't, let's get everyone playing Wii Sports. And then iPhone came out and did it for them. They, didn't, they, don't need, they don't need to do it anymore. And they don't do it anymore. And that's why they've sort of partnered with these companies, because they still want to widen that audience. And they, they believe that they're the second console. If you're a mobile gamer, you started off on Angry Birds, your next console should be a Nintendo console. And then it might stay there, but you might move on to PlayStation, you might move on to Xbox, you might move on to more advanced Nintendo games. Um, they want to be that tour. So the idea is you get Mario Run, you get Mario Kart Tour, you love it, and you think, you know what, I'm going to get a Switch and get Deluxe and then you get Switch and Deluxe and, and then you're a gamer. And I think that's what they want to do. That, that does work for some companies. Um, I, I, I spoke to the developers behind PES, um, or eFootball PES as it's now, and then PES Mobile is absolutely huge. And they say they do see people who play PES Mobile and then move on to the, uh, the, the, the console version. I did see someone excitedly pointing that, yeah, go. Um, Um, another question about Nintendo, actually. Uh, I, I was just thinking, they, uh, regarding the Wii U, they um, ported some well, very big games like uh, Breath of the Wild and uh, Mario Kart, for example, Mario Kart 8, uh, to, yeah, to the Switch. But there are so many more games that were not played by so many people because the Wii U performed so badly. Um, yeah, just asking why doesn't Nintendo port more games from the Wii U to the Switch? For example, what I would really like to see is um, Mario 3D World, because yeah, that is really underappreciated because many people didn't get to play it because the Wii U didn't sell well. So, so why haven't Nintendo ported more Wii U games? including Super Mario 3D World, and I'm very, going to very awkwardly come behind you here. That doesn't look wrong at all. Um, why are not more Wii U games being ported into Switch? Um, for example, Super Mario 3D World. I'm still waiting for Twilight Princess HD and Wind Waker HD. Um, I'm surprised they've done Cap Captain Toad Treasure Tracker ahead of that. Um, yeah. Well, I feel like we're probably going to see... I mean, he's, Chris is your man. Chris... You're like the, 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 the doyen of all things Nintendo. So Nintendo have the, when Nintendo release a new console, they release their big games very early on. Um, they often do it. They didn't do it with the Wii U. They did barely release anything on the Wii U. But, the, um, but they released their, uh, well, early on, early on. And, um, and um, uh, uh, New Super Mario Bros. U, and that's about it. Um, and then Nintendo tend to peak very quickly, and then it, their consoles fade away. Um, it happens a lot. It happened with the GameCube, for instance. They have a couple of big games afterwards, but they tend to be at Christmas. What the, what the Wii U has allowed them to do, which is a wonderful privilege they've got this generation, is to plug the holes in that release schedule. So when there's a gap, when their development teams are working on the next thing, they can go, and here's Bayonetta, and here's New Super Mario Brothers U, and here's uh, Pokken. Uh, you, know, you know, something that fits into the gap, that's a missing genre, something that will bring in a specific gamer, a specific audience. Now, they don't need to do New Super Mario 3D World yet, because they've done Odyssey, and then they did New Super Mario Brothers U, and then they did Super Mario Maker. They, they, they're not, they don't need to, but they all, they all have that in backup. They all have that in reserve. When there is a gap in the schedule and a need to get people excited about something, they will, they will probably do it. Um, I, I, I'm with James. I want the HD Zelda games. Super Mario 3D World would be, would be amazing. Um, there, there aren't actually that many left. They have gone through quite a lot. But interestingly, they then have to counter the other argument from everyone going, they only do Wii U ports. Why don't they do new games? And they sort, they, they sort of just 
it's all about the flow of the release schedule. They could release them all tomorrow, but then what would they release later on? Yeah, so they, I mean, because the other thing to remember is Nintendo really didn't... So how successful the Switch was, I think, surprised even Nintendo. And so I think that there's... There's, probably, there's a far larger audience there than they expected there to be. And one of the things that's kept that going, as Chris said, is having a steady flow of products. And they've actually, you know, companies work quite far in advance. So they've obviously got that going. And I think you're probably going to see it because there's plenty of people there hungry for their products in a way that there never was on the Wii U. And I can understand why they might not have had any of that planned right out of the gate. But I think you're now at the point in the life cycle where this is kind of like the next wave of thinking about product strategy for them. And what they really need, what's done them so many favours so far, is making sure they've got a big game coming out every six to eight weeks, just so there's always a reason to carry on. Well, case in point, um, they've just released Zelda Link's Awakening on Switch, and it coincided with Switch Lite, and it was essentially a launch title for Switch Lite. Had they just put out Twilight Princess Wind Waker HD, even as a double pack for Switch Lite, that wouldn't have got as much interest, that wouldn't have generated as many sales, I would argue. Yeah, but they have done, um, they did do, uh, uh, Link's Awakening's been in the works for ages, right? I mean, that's the thing, and, and I'm sure they will get round to it, and the Breath of the Wild 2's on the schedule, so they'll have to work out where they're going to put those, and, and when Odyssey 2's going to land, where they, 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 they'll be thinking about it. Any other questions, or I've got more here? Nope, okay. Um, how is the retail business coping with the shift to all digital? Uh, how do you think they will support the next generation hardware and software? Um, yeah, I mean, the shift towards downloads. Like, well, well, the short were, answer is not very well. Not very right? well at all. I mean, well, case in point, um, you were looking at charts and like a uh, FIFA. FIFA, like, consistently. No, <laughs> apparently not. FIFA in the last week was 50% digital in the UK. In the launch week, in the launch week in the UK, FIFA was 50% digital. Now, FIFA is consistently one of the biggest sellers at physical retail. It's one of the only games that people actually go into a store and pick up a box for. Um, and, and you know, it is played by a very sort of mainstream yeah. kind of consumer, people whose habits don't change necessarily that quickly. But when, when you're now, we are now at a very clear tipping point where. I, I don't know how quickly it plays out from here, but I, I imagine there'll be a retail market for FIFA specifically for quite a long time. But so I follow the. I'm a bit boring. I love data. I love charts. And the games market in the UK this year is about 15% down physical sales. Um, that's software. Uh, PlayStation 4 hardware sales are down 40% this year. It's normal. We're at the end of a console cycle. You get that. Xbox One sales are down 35%. Uh, that's not an indication of anything really. Um, uh, Switch is up obviously, but um, overall it's a really hard year for the games market. Digital is not helping that obviously. Borderlands 3 was 60% digital. So we're still. I, I thought it was in the 70s, I could be wrong. I thought it was like. It was, it was definitely. It's was, it was 2K's like biggest digital well, seller. Yeah, I, I was so. using UK figures. Oh, I was, yeah, I was revealing information I'm not allowed to. Um, the, um, the, uh, so there is a, there is a, there's definitely been a switch and a turn. How will games retail cope with that? Well, they're going to have to move on in a way. So the thing that Game are doing is this belong esports arena concept. Um, they want to stop. They don't want to stop making money from physical goods. They acknowledge that that's going to decline and keep declining. So their uh, their objective, and they admit it. They're not. They're not pretending it's not going to. They know that. 
So their objective is now to turn their, get their stores into places where you experience games, esports, arenas. Um, they call them arenas, they're, they're more like areas. But they, you go there, you play games, you pay to play games, you get your mates, you do a stag do, you do a birthday party, whatever. Um, it's an interesting model. It's not going to make them. Uh, the, the question is whether or not that's going to generate enough revenue to offset declines at physical. And I don't know the answer to that. And I hope I hope it does. I mean, it's a lot of a lot of people start off in games retail, and I actually hope games retail survives. It will. There'll always be physical goods. Yeah. I, I I absolutely believe that there'll always be physical goods. Um, I just I don't know if there's always going to be specialist retail. Uh, on the high street. Um, I think if there is, it will have to change. It is trying to change. Um, but uh, uh, digital is overtaking physical. I think it's more convenient. It will plateau. It plateaued in music. It got to a point and it just went, this is how big the market is. It's still a multi-billion dollar business. There's still money to be made from it. You've got these companies cropping up all the time, doing indie games in boxes. So, it's, 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 so how's it going to cope? Probably quite badly. Um, it's well, it's, I, just, it's yeah. just got to kind of crawl through to next Christmas because once next Christmas arrives and we've got PlayStation 5 and Project Scarlet Xbox 2 whatever the hell they call it like that at least should give it a bit of a shot in the arm this Christmas is atrocious for this game release. Really um, they're really missing some big hitters. There's no big Ubisoft title unless you count Ghost Recon, which I don't. Um, and uh, uh, there's no Bethesda game. There's not always, but there's actually no Bethesda game at all this year. There's no Rockstar. There's not always either. But there's no Square Enix game. It's a really tough Christmas. There's no, there's no like EA military shooter. No, there's this the Jedi game, but it's not as yeah. they don't expect it to be as big. It's a really tough Christmas for the retail and. And I and next year Q1 next year H1 next year Avengers and Final Fantasy VII and, and uh, 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 Watch Dogs Legion and Cyberpunk amazing, right? uh, but Christmas is where retailers make most of their money. It's where it's the most important quarter of the year, and I think this one's going to be a really hard one. But it's also like it's a slightly bigger question than that anyway. Because you can talk about 50% of FIFA sales were digital versus physical, but I forget what it was. I think it was either EA's last full year set of financial results, or maybe it was just a three-month period. But something like 20% of all of the money it made was on FIFA Ultimate Team card packs. So that's like, if you take that part away from EA, it's stock just crashes, right? And that's not, that's not a game. That's not something you buy in a shop. What, what it is is publishers of that size, they're, they're less and less and less reliant on publishers all the time, even outside of the physical digital split. Um, and that's a very difficult position for a retailer to be in. Because these days, the only thing that any major games company really relies on a retailer for is to sell a console. But even then, you know, uh, I think it was a few weeks ago, Sony's announced its own online store where it's going to start selling PlayStations to people direct, which is in and of itself a bit of a slap in the face to retailers, which are previously... it's. It, it, I would imagine it would think twice before doing that because yeah. it wouldn't so, want to upset retailers because it needs them to sell consoles. This, now Sony's like, who cares? Buy them straight from us. You're completely right. And in fact, only in the last 18 months, two years, have they actually started advertising the fact you can download these games. They were too scared to put on adverts Download from Xbox Live, download from PlayStation Network, because they were worried it would upset game and Argos and, and, and all that. I'd say Blockbuster. I seem to have gone back in time. Um, uh, Woolworths. Um, but um, 
but uh, uh, yeah, it, it, they've, they're only st but they're started advertising now because they're not too worried anymore about upsetting anybody. Because there aren't that many left to upset. And, and then, you know, not to throw another thing in there, but when you factor in something like Game Pass or PlayStation Now, I mean, this is like 700 games for six quid and all of it's digital. Um, it just kind of takes the rug out from absolutely everybody, right? And like Microsoft now doesn't even think in terms of game sales. It thinks like Netflix, things about minutes spent and all of this stuff. It's, we've got a kind of a new world coming in terms of how people think about popularity. And it's really not about units sold anymore, I don't think. Probably got time for one more question from the audience. If not, we'll get one from the list. No, you're all very shy. Um, how does the current gaming community feel about Google Stadia? And are developers, publishers, manufacturers worried that with super fast internet making its way across the world, will everyone just stream all their content rather than purchase? Uh, I, I, I must say, I, a, a surprising number of people within the game development community still kind of say, what the fuck is Google Stadia? So I don't know if you can be so excited about something you don't fully understand yeah. what it is. Or Publishers what it are excited. Ubisoft are excited. Um, gamers don't care. And the truth is it's not really, the gamers not caring doesn't really bother Ubisoft either because to Ubisoft, right now when Ubisoft advertises or promotes or goes, hey, you should buy uh, let's pick a Ubisoft game, Far Cry. You should buy Far Cry. What they're doing is they're advertising to everybody who can play Far Cry. So you might have a PC, you might have an Xbox, you might have a PlayStation. So those people can play Far Cry. With the launch of Google Stadia, anyone can play Far Cry who have the right internet connection. But suddenly the addressable audience becomes bigger. And that, from a publishing perspective, is really exciting because suddenly they can advertise to everybody. They don't care. They don't expect Xbox gamers to go, oh, I'm not going to buy a console, I'm going to go on Stadia. They don't expect PlayStation gamers to do that. Google might expect it, but Ubisoft, Activision, all those guys, they don't expect it. They just want to reach more people, particularly in countries like India. India uh, has like an amazing amount of people watch YouTube and Twitch games in India of like Halo and Gears of War and all that kind of stuff. But they don't own games consoles. You know, games console penetration in that market is non-existent. So they're watching games they don't play. And Google Stadia and xCloud and, and all the other ones, PlayStation Now, potentially unlocks that market. And that is why publishers are excited about it. Um, the business model is a, is a complicated issue. But you know, take last year, Red Dead Redemption 2 was coming out, everyone was talking about it. Yet the only people that could play it were the 100 million PS4 owners, the 30 million Xbox One owners, and that was it. And suddenly, if you were tempted to give it a go, you could go on Stadia and you could click on YouTube link and you could play it. And that is what, that's what it's exciting to, um, and you know, I'm sure we've all got someone, like my builder, when he was a kid, loved Civilization. He loved it, he loved Civilization. And he came around my house and he said, um, I, don't, I have to play on my phone these days, but the, the, civil, the games aren't the same. The strategy games aren't the same. And I've always said to him, you should get a console. You should get a PC. And he went, oh, I don't justify it. I can't justify it for one game. In theory, now he doesn't need to... Now, if he likes Civilization, he can buy every single one of them every time it comes out via streaming. He doesn't have to worry about... He doesn't have to worry about a console. And that is why... And that, there's always someone like that. It's, I've got a group of people that are like that. So um, I think to developers and publishers, for that reason, it's exciting. Whether or not there's an entire business for Google, that's a different question. thing is, I just think... Uh, I think the problem is, and this is a problem, is that I don't... I still don't quite know 
what Google is actually, like it's streaming, we get that. It's about the ability to play a game without needing a disc or a console, it's a console in the cloud. Thing is, I still don't know exactly what Google imagines it will become or what it will be. Does anybody here have any idea about that? And, and like we report on this stuff, but there, there still doesn't seem to be a clear defined plan. Like you can say what Netflix is, you can say what Spotify is, easy to understand. You can't actually say what Stadia is yet. But and I, I think, think that's for your friend who could theoretically buy all the Civilization games. That is a big, big deal because what the hell is it? I, th I think that's the thing, like, it, it comes down to the, the wonderful buzz phrase that we love receiving in our inboxes, the Netflix of games. The years we've had people telling us, oh, I'm making the Netflix of games. No, you're not, because it doesn't work. But entertainment, people are used to having an abundance of content with little to no friction to starting it at their fingertips thanks to Netflix, thanks to Spotify. And games is the only form of entertainment you haven't done that. Even reading, even reading, you can if you're like, I think it's Kindle Unlimited. You can subscribe to that, download whatever the hell books you want. Hell, my local library, I realized, has an app where you can download comics and magazines. Like, and just, there's no kind of entry, there's no entry cost because it's a library, but there's no entry barrier in terms of I need this dedicated machine. The thing is, I don't think the barrier to that is just technology. I think it's, I personally, and I'm quite tech forward, like you kind of have to be to do what we do, but I have a problem, and this is what Google is doing, with paying $60, 40 quid yeah. for a game that you don't even have a file for, like no disk, no file, it's just this ephemeral stream from some no. data center somewhere. That that shouldn't cost the same amount of money as a box game, and yet that seem that is the offer that Google is coming the, out of the gate with. The and, I, and I think that's a, and also you have to pay a subscription fee on top of that. And I, and I think, well, sure. But what I'm saying is, I think actually the the barrier for a lot of people that actually play games is to be, why should I actually do this? When we've only just got used to the idea of downloading a game rather than buying a box, why would you then forfeit just even having a file on your hard drive so you can play it offline? I don't think we're there yet. I can't imagine there are many mobile users who are like, oh, I'd really like to play Assassin's Creed Odyssey on my tiny little smartphone. Um, but then I guess for me then, perhaps more promising is the the Xbox, Project X Cloud and Xbox Game Pass. You've got a subscription, you've got a massive library of games, and then you can play it on across all devices, including your Xbox console. Like maybe that's the end. The business model of Stadia, I grant you, is weird. Why am I paying 60 quid for something that doesn't exist? Um, but but I, think it, I think that's what it's going to become. Uh, I, I think the logical endpoint for pretty much all digital business models is some sort of, well, certainly a reduced price, but if you're going to do streaming, I think catalogue makes a lot of sense. It's what people associate with it, all of the popular streaming services out there. I don't think games can be anything different. I think Microsoft kind of recognises that, PlayStation recognises that, and it's whether or not what exactly Google's thinking is right now that's kind of different from the way Sony and Microsoft I, see it. I'd, uh, if Nintendo tomorrow did a streaming service, play all Nintendo games for 10 quid a month or whatever. I'd, I'd get that, you get that? I'd, I'd get that. I think get you'd it? pay a lot more than 10 quid a month for that, Chris. <laughs> um. Okay, similar question we got then was, are we ready to stream games off the internet? Because as much as previous person said, oh, super fast internet is making its way across the world. Yeah, but to very specific parts of the yeah. world. Well, I mean, so, but... It, 
where are the majority of the people that own a PS4 and an Xbox and so on. They're in very specific parts of the world with high internet speeds. I, I think there's a big enough market for it to be a success in these places. What I will say is I lived in Berlin for a few years. Um, the internet speed in Berlin is not high enough for this stuff. Um, the internet speed is high enough in, say, Romania. Uh, there is, it's odd, like, you have extremely high internet speeds in Estonia, you have extremely low internet speeds in Spain and Italy. Like, it's very, very hard to say where's going to be able to sustain it, where's not. What you can say is huge swathes of North America can. What you can say is the UK can. What you can say is most of Scandinavia can. Australia can, so on. Like, there's a lot of the world where there's a lot of disposable income where this stuff is possible. I think, I think you can make a very good business off it right now. You're all answering these questions far too good, far too well. Uh, in fact, that was the last one we had. So, does anybody else have any questions? Yes, Mr. Yanton, sir. Hang on. I missed the greatest consumer in the room. <laughs> Just a quick comment talking about distribution of games. Um, if you look at a lot of the games now, the ones making the most money are in the freemium model compared to what traditional publishers and console makers are charging. How do you think that all fit together? So, I'm not entirely sure I understood the question. <laughs> um, so, how, how will the, the business model... Yeah, freemium games are making all the money. Right. Well, Fortnite's changed that, right? Everyone's now not used to, used to buying their big AAA games um, because you can just play them. Um, I mean, I can only give my view on it. I mean, obviously, free-to-play is getting bigger, but, but premium is also going up. Not as much. Um, and it's just that I think it comes down to the experience and what what the developers want to create, right? I mean, if you're making a multiplayer game, I think everyone's like leaning towards you have to make it free in some regard. Um, like if, um, and I say, I don't mean local multiplayer, I mean online multiplayer. And you're even seeing that, like I, I, I do expect there to be a free Call of Duty Battle Royale thing coming up soon. I do expect there to be a version of that. But, where, did, um, where did you hear that, Chris? Hmm? Where did you hear about the free multiplayer Battle Royale Call of Duty? No comment. Um, the, um, but it's the, um, but, uh, but uh, well, free to play is going to get bigger. I think premium is going to get bigger. I think developers like making. You know, it's interesting because upstairs there was uh, we just had this investment summit, and there's a group, an investment group upstairs, and they did this nice little diagram. And on the diagram, they did a, the percentage of game developers that are making games that are premium, and it was 65% of that group was premium. And then there was some that was premium and a little bit of microtransactions. So game developers still like making premium games. They don't make as much money necessarily, but then subscription is changing it all again, isn't it? Um, because now you can, that's another way of experiencing solitary single player experiences. I, I think it also depends on how, how the industry changes in terms of how people can monetize their games. So yeah, Fortnite's doing brilliantly because it's got the um, cosmetics and loot boxes and all like that. But loot boxes, for example, have come under, it doesn't have loot boxes, so sorry. No, it has cosmetic, you can tell how much I play Fortnite. <laughs> I have played Fortnite for 20 minutes, I sucked, I did not play it again. 
Fortnite does not have loot boxes, but a lot of games do. There are so many games, both on mobile and on console now, that have these randomized mechanics. This has come under a lot of scrutiny in the last two years, particularly kind of since the Battlefront 2 thing kicked off. And we're now on the cusp of, in the UK specifically, of potentially having regulation and laws about how you can monetize your games. If that changes, that changes how you can monetize a free-to-play game, which will change how whether people do them and where, how... I think people will continue to do free-to-play games, but depending on what the monetization model is, depends on... You're going down the route that they're going to stop free games. It's going to be over. Yeah, so they're, 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 over. they're definitely not going to stop making free-to-play games. What I think might, might actually happen, I, mean, I think when we talk about free-to-play games, it's associated with being nickeled and dimed, right? It's about tiny, tiny little amounts of money, death by a thousand cuts, that kind of idea. But that's actually not the only version of a freemium model that you can imagine. Uh, the Battle Pass model is a good one. I mean, this isn't necessarily two pounds here, two pounds there. It's you're, you're paying in reasonable chunks of money. I would call that a premium model, to be honest. You don't have to pay for the game, but you're paying decent amounts for the content that comes afterwards. Um, I, I think Paradox uh, Publishing is a good company to use as an example. They still charge for their games, but Paradox has reported some of its highest ever quarters in terms of revenue, and these have been on quarters where it hasn't released any new games. It's making all of this money off expansion packs, and it's releasing these expansion packs very, very regularly. I went to a, a convention they hold called PDXCon last year, maybe the year before, and they said that they're, they're not looking at going free to play, but actually if they stopped charging for their games, it wouldn't make that much, charging up front for their games, wouldn't make that much difference to, to the health of their business. Because all of their money comes in mostly after the fact. It comes from expansion packs. Now this isn't what we normally think of as a free to play model, but if you stop charging for Crusader Kings and just charge for the expansion packs, that's fundamentally a freemium model. And that's actually working really well for Paradox. And I don't think it's too much of a leap to see a world where Paradox Paradox stops charging for its games and just charges for expansion content. And on, in the flip side of this, Techland have done it the other way. So they've been updating Dead Island, uh, not Dead Island, um, Dying Light, uh, so much that people are buying the original game over and over again. They're giving the updates for free and it's causing, they actually made more money from Dying Light in its second year on sale than its first year. Then they made more money in its third year than its second year because they kept updating the game. Everyone was in it, everyone was sharing it. Word of mouth caused spikes of the original box copy, or the, not actually box copy, just the original game. So actually it's the other way, so it works in reverse. People will have, there's upfront premium costs and expansions were free. There's a lot of different business models. We're all experimenting, aren't we, David? But they're all kind of like blending into one, I think is the point. By free, it's, it, you know, we've always seen it premium free to play, sharp divide in the middle. I actually think premium developers have learned a lot from free to play, and they're actually making kind of hybrid business models that are, that are much more sustainable for them. The cost of the games and keeping people employed over longer periods of time, less need to like lay off huge numbers of staff as soon as you ship. I think in general free-to-play could end up becoming a good thing for the industry. It's just getting away from this reputation for charging 10 cents for this, 10 cents for that. You can't play any more of the game if you don't give me money. That kind of thing, you know, so. Okay, I think that is time. Uh, yep, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm getting the wrapped up sign. Um, we've probably actually gone over, so I apologise. Thank you very much for joining us, and uh, thank you to my team. Thanks for your patience. Cheers. Cheers. 
Thank you so much for listening in this week. It's a bit of an unusual episode we grant you, but we'll be back next week with your usual news-focused episode talking about the biggest and hottest topics in the games industry. In the meantime, you can listen to all previous episodes on your podcasting platform of choice. And why not go like, subscribe, and review us? It helps more people discover the show. And as always, you can find your daily dose of news, insight, and analysis into the world behind video games at gamesindustry.biz. Music